Assalamu alaikum everyone. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Welcome to an amazing Tuesday night session, probably our last Tuesday for the summer. Um, next week we go back to the law school full time and I'm sure you know kids are back in school and all that sort of stuff so the craziness begins. Um, I'm so excited for our continuation today of Surah Al-Hajj. Um, I just I wanted to um, share with you, you know, in the last introduction um, to the last halakha, I kind of went off on my um, conviction and passion about um, exceptional converts and how I really believe that converts are a gift to the community um, because there are people that come with tremendous gifts. Um, they're hand selected by God and um, you know I've had just the blessing and um, you know incredible experience of meeting some of these really exceptional people and I was so excited that actually um, this past Sunday I had an opportunity to have a conversation um, with two of my favorite exceptional converts on the planet. Um, one of them is Joe who um, people have seen here before he's the editor-in-chief of our Tefsir project um, and then also Witsky Marison who um, we all had the blessing of hearing um, her adhan at the beginning of the last um, khutbah and I played that also. Um, and you know, and just I put out my working theory about how you know with these amazing converts who come in this very dark time for Islam, you know, it's like God has selected people who have the potential to be the power hitters to knock things out of the park and help move things forward. And I really had in mind, um, you know, I wanted to then follow that with a conversation so people could actually then engage and listen to some of these exceptional converts and hear our conversation and um, allow you know us to share some of these experiences and talk about the things that are important. And it just blew my mind. I, alhamdulillah, we had an incredible conversation on Sunday. I, um, it was about two, two plus hours long. I just finished editing it today. As we speak now, it's uploading onto YouTube, so very soon it will be there for um, public viewing. Um, but I just want to say that, um, you know, I hope that people will watch, take the time. For us, it felt like a, a five-minute conversation, even though it went for about two hours. But, you know, we covered things that, um, you know, were obviously, you know, experiential. Um, the three of us came from very different angles. Um, but the things that we experienced and things that we talked about, I felt were really um, interesting, profound. It's kind of like sitting with your friends and just listening, you know, to a conversation. So it was very engaging. But I think it's also important for us as a Muslim community to appreciate and know more about the convert experience and get to know some of these people who have been selected by God and have superpowers that, you know, can can turn things around. Um, so um, I want to thank Witski and and Joe um, because I, I think that um, what what this time calls for is something different, something maybe a little bit shocking. Um, shocking to our senses to awaken that beauty and the passion to move things forward. Um, but it also requires, um, you know, a recommitment to the primordial beauty and the primordial message of the Quran that we learn here. Um, and I got so much out of this conversation with my two dear friends. I learned so much from them. I'm so grateful for their insight, their care, um, their, their, you know, deep thoughtfulness. Um, and, um, and also the ability to witness some superpower. So um, if you guys have been following, you know, the Adan was incredible. Um, we had an amazing uh, couple of songs that Ritsky performed for us during this recording. Um, and we had a chance also to talk with Joe about his superpower, which was creating the Prophet's Pulpit, which is a stunning book. If you guys um, have not read it yet, 
please do. It, change, it will change your idea about the message of Islam, what khutbahs should look like and feel like, and what they should inspire you to do. Um, and that was, you know, beautiful artistry that Joe created um, with, you know, taking spoken word and turning it into a, a book that just sings off the page and grabs hold of your heart and makes you feel um, beauty. Um, that's an incredible superpower. Um, and I feel like we just, you know, we, we need to run with this moment, um, stop being shy, stop holding converts back, stop holding ourselves back and reach for that primordial and, and try and create something really beautiful. So I hope that if you watch the conversation, I hope that you'll get that. And also um, just to plug very quickly again, we have the Share with a Friend campaign. So if you um, have a friend um, who th thinks, you know, who you think should read the Prophet's pulpit or should have a copy, um, or if you yourself don't have a copy, send me your name, your address, your email, and we will definitely send a copy to you thanks to the very kind generosity of a donor who read the book and felt so moved that he just felt like every single Muslim, um, in you know, sh every thinking Muslim should have a copy um, to you know, inspire their path and their journey. So just to give you a flavor for the superpower and the beauty that we experienced in our conversation, I'm gonna play um, the song that was performed. This is actually on YouTube, but we got a live performance. So if you wanna see the actual live performance, then once the, the video is up, definitely um, take a listen. So just for a second, here is Witski's incredible Nasheed.
alhamdulillah, um, when, when we heard this live with Witsky and the guitar and just her divine voice, it just took us to another place, like a primordial place. And that is the power that we talked about in this conversation is a lot of times converts come with this connection. And I think that's really what um, can move all of us to, you know, forget about all of these sort of ridiculous, petty, you know, labels and arguments about details and technicalities, but to really just connect into that primordial divine beauty that all of us recognize in our hearts and that can inspire us and move us to something better. And I think that that's the piece that super powered, exceptional converts can bring to the table. So I hope you guys will take the time to, to watch uh, the video when it's up. Thank you again to Joe, thank you to Witsky um, for a really memorable you know, conversation and um, hopefully the first of many more to come, inshallah. So with that, um, thank you so much for joining us and I'm so excited for day two of Surah Al-Hajj. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. وسبحانه العلي العظيم والحمد لله رب العالمين وأشرف الصلاة والتسليم على محمد على محمد خاتم الأنبياء والرسل أجمعين المرسل رحمة للعالمين وعلى آله الميامين الأطهار الميامين وعلى أصحاب المختارين وعلى من اتبعوا بإحسان إلى يوم الدين اللهم اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري وحل العقدة من لساني يفقه قولي يا رب العالمين Okay, I think we we stopped at um, 30. Um, before we, maybe just a, a, a summation, and there were a couple of things that I, I did overlook when I went back and looked at my notes. Um, so it's a good thing that we have an opportunity then to uh, um, ta uh, take them on. Um, so, as we said, Surah Al-Hajj is one of these constitutional surah. It is a foundational surah. And it... Um, it starts out with the reminder of taqwa Allah, that critical concept of being God conscious. And takes us to a, 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 a critical reflection on a paradigm. There are people who worship God at an edge. And those people are easily swayed. They are swayed by um, it, it, they worship God from a, a narcissistic foundation, from a highly um, uh, uh, selfish foundation. If 
the it's the relate to God only to the extent that God either serves them personally or takes away from them personally. And so if they go through trials or tribulations or difficulties, they're in a state of doubt as we talked about um, last time. And that this being at an, in, 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 uh, in a, uh, the, you know, this, this state of being on a half on an edge, um, makes one susceptible to being swayed by the demonic in life as Surah Al-Hajj itself um, describes it as shaitan marid, that they're, they're the, the, the demonic and the satanic in, in life uh, easily attracts them and easily sways them. And the, the critical issue that we've talked about, and that is the issue of jidan, the, the ability, the miraculous ability of human beings to dispute and to construct counter narratives. Uh, which could be liberating and could be obfuscating, but disputation um, and ability to construct counter narratives when it is when it ignores as we will see the message of Surah Al-Hajj itself ends up taking us to that paradigm of uh, the satanic influence instead of being God conscious always on an ethical pass losing sight of that ethical past um, and so on. Okay, and then we also talked about which um, which in, in verse 5 of Surah Al-Hajj this critical idea about your life as, as, as the arc of life itself life as a journey and In this life, Allah, as after Allah talks about the arc of life and life as a journey, the the house and Bayt al Atiq, this translated as the ancient house or the primordial house, the house of God, as a sacred space. The the, the, that space is revealed to the Prophet Ibrahim and the condition for the existence of the space from the beginning is that it be only dedicated to the worshipping of God and nothing but God and that it fulfill other conditions. This is a, a this is a space that has very special rules. After being constructed or after being discovered, or, or uh, uh, Prophet Ibrahim being told about it, 
that human beings deviated from the path and the charge to the Prophet Muhammad والسلام, and to these Muslims is to restore that space to its proper function, its proper role. Okay. There is a, and I, and I just I forgot to uh, to tell you about this. There is a narrations or a, a cluster, as I always call them, with verse fourteen and fifteen. This is where Allah Subhanahu wa Taala says that those who doubt that Allah can in fact support the righteous and can make and we've talked about the, the debate whether this is specifically sort of a prediction about the, the, the Prophet Muhammad that he will be victorious or it has a greater normative implication is that the, you must believe in God's ability to stand by the righteous and give aid to the righteous and then the challenge this sort of existential challenge where Allah says that you know if you, go ahead you know try to see how far you can uh, how far you can get in this universe whatever you do you will remain within the parameters that God defined there are these uh, reports that say um, again uh, purported occasions for revelations that say that the Prophet around the time of the Hijra approached the tribes of Asad and Ghatafan, two very prominent influential tribes, and sought to enter an, into an alliance with them. And that Asad and Ghatafan refused to enter into an alliance with the Prophet at the time because they had close relations with the Jewish tribes or close business relations, trade relations with the Jewish tribes in Medina. And they told the Prophet that we fear that if ultimately you're not victorious, that we will sustain the wrath of the Jewish tribes. In other words, the, the, it will cost us business relations or trade relations. And that ultimately, and that, that, that narrative is cited as an occasion for revelation for verses 14 and 15. 
it's not surprising that I over that I forgot about it because uh, for many different reasons it it is very doubtful that that was an occasion for revelation. Um, sure, I mean, I'm, I again, I uh, there are many narratives about the Prophet ﷺ indeed approaching Asad al Ghatafan in the first couple of years of Hijrah. And there are abundant reports about Asad al Ghatafan refusing to enter into uh, an alliance or into some type of understanding. And uh, they express not just fear of, some reports say they express fear that this will cost, uh, cost them trade relations with uh, Jewish tribes or that it will cost them in terms of their relations with Quraysh or that it will cost them in terms of their relations with the allies of Quraysh, whatever it is. I mean, all of that is, there is abundant evidence for. But as that as an occasion for verses 14 and 15 that the quran was ex specifically referring to that historical incident very doubtful because even the the the, the language of 14 and 15 themselves um, are much broader than that and it it is not just a challenge to collectivities but it challenges individuals that if you you know ultimately it's it's as if God is saying, um, you don't realize, regardless of how much you believe you know, and how much you believe you've mastered the rules and logic of this existence that you're in, you you don't realize in fact how limited this mastery is, and that you, you only see a very small piece of the picture. Um, anyway, and many scholars have actually expressed doubt about the, the occasion for revelation um, being this, the Asad and Ghatafan sort of negotiations, as it were. Uh, the other uh, thing that um, is worth noting As we've talked about, this is, let's see what verse was this. Um, Okay, so this is verse 25. When, again, just a quick review. After that underscoring that there are many systems of belief 
This is in, in verse 17. And uh, ultimately, God is going to resolve the, the differences and the disagreements between systems of beliefs in the hereafter with the clear message that comes out of this is that there will never be a single system of belief on this earth and that reflect on the fact that already existence is in state of submission to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala but human beings have the choice to rebel against the state of submission. This is verse 18. And then after that introduction, the idea of the sacred space of Al-Haram al-Makki is introduced and that expression, which is quite remarkable, وَمَنْ يُرِدْ فِيهِ بِإِلْحَادٍ بِظُلْمٍ نُذِقْهُ مِنْ عَذَابٍ أَلِيمٍ that when it comes to Mecca, the expression of whoever, whoever Muhammad Asad translates, translates it as, and all who seek to profane it by deliberate evil doing, all such shall be, shall we cause to take to taste grievous suffering in the life to come. Um, Ilhad al-Zulm is not just profane it by deliberate evil doing. The grammatical construction imparts the idea which we've touched upon last halaqa that committing injustice in Mecca is tantamount to ilhad to is tantamount to disbelief altogether so disbelief Committed in Mecca is a great injustice. Disbelief committed in Mecca, this is specially consecrated space. It is not like any other space. So disbelief committed in Mecca is injustice. It is as if God is saying, you, you want to not believe, go somewhere else. This space is reserved. But also committing an injustice is tantamount to disbelief if committed in the space. And this is why we have all these ahadiths that say that even uh, if you hoard products or you, you know, uh, try to... Um, engage in some type of monopoly of trade in Mecca, that that's equal to um, disbelief. Or that if you cheat in commercial transactions in Mecca, that's equal to disbelief. Um, the, the list is long, and in the Islamic, it's, a, it's more Islamic ethics than Islamic law, 
although you know jurists like a Shafi and Abu Hanifa and so on and, or Hanafi jurists generally had long discussions about uh, how the state must treat crimes or the commission on any type of uh, injustice in Mecca as a most grave infraction and that has that the state has to have special laws to maintain or protect the moral order in Mecca but th this is a broader topic um, Early on, people like Amr ibn Aus, and, and this was a, a strong orientation, especially in the first couple of centuries in Islam, um, reflected in, in statements of, or at, or at least attributed to the statements of many Sahaba, especially people like Amr ibn Khattab, uh, Imam Ali, an abundance of reports uh, in early individuals like Amr ibn Aus um, that this explicitly means that the state that commission of injustice or oppression in Mecca is absolute sacrilege. Some even claimed that the reason that the capital, after Khulafa al Rashidun, the rightly guided Khulafa, the, the first four, at least in the Sunni tradition, that the reason that the capital was never restored to Mecca uh, and rather moved instead to Damascus and then Baghdad is because the state was aware that Mecca is beyond politics or at least that it would cause a great deal of offense to Muslims to commit the type of political maneuverings and nonsense that goes on normally in, uh, in in empires and that Mecca had to be maintained as a sanctuary with rules that always accepted it from the vagaries of politics and so on. There is a report just for the sake of being complete and exhaustive um, that a man called Abdullah ibn Anis um, who was a Meccan and immigrated from Mecca to Medina that Abdullah ibn Anis started having an argument with a native Medinian, was an Ansari, and that during the course of this argument, 
they started it was an argument about uh, a tribal argument they were they were arguing about which tribe is superior you know like the typical arab uh, arguments tafakhur bil ansab and so on and the abdullah bin anis ended up murdering the ansari killed him and then he apostated and escaped from medina after apostating from Islam and returned to Mecca. And then you have these traditions that say that the occasion for the for this ayah, when Yurid al had that particular expression, was referring to the incident of Abdullah ibn Anis. Um, again, I mean, it very doubtful. Uh, did it? Ha- the, the incident was Abdullah bin Anis happened? Probably. Um, there was a man called Abdullah bin Anis, and he did apostate, and he did escape to Mecca. And then, when Muslims eventually conquered Mecca, Abdullah bin Anis feared that Muslims will punish him for having murdered the Ansari and then apostating. And the Abdullah ibn Anis goes on the run again after Muslims conquer Mecca. And then we have conflicting reports about the fate of Abdullah ibn Anis, whether he returned to Islam or whether he perished in the desert or whether, um, you know, there are conflicting reports about what becomes of him. Abdullah ibn Anis, the story of his murdering the Ansari took place around the 5th Hijri year or 6th Hijri year. In my view, which means a few years after the revelation of Surah Al-Hajj. So that those who claimed that this ayah was revealed in response to the Abdullah ibn Anis um, incident, um, it's baseless. I mean, and it's extremely weak. And some of the medieval scholars, you know, expressed serious doubts about uh, the Abdullah ibn Anis incident and that, in fact, that this is what, you know, what occasioned uh, that it was referring to that incident. Um, most scholars in the for the great balance of Islamic history understood the discourse of Surah Al-Hajj about Mecca as transcending any particular occasion or any particular incident. But, and this is amply illustrated when, with the Prophet ﷺ saying that only in Mecca, even, even if you plan to commit an injustice, but, don't, but not carrying out, even if you don't ultimately carry out the injustice that you plan to commit, only in Mecca, do you, in fact, become become liable for the plan, even if not executed? 
which means that Mecca, a sacred space, has very special rules. The reason I, I'm underscoring this so heavily is that if I was talking, if I was teaching this a couple of centuries ago, this would be common knowledge to everyone. Everyone would basically say, okay, move on. We know that Mecca has special rules, that there are special regulations, that the moral status of Mecca is very particular. But what is mind-boggling is that in the, in the 20th century in particular, you know, with, of course, with the, with, the, with the dawn of colonialism and the rise of the Wahhabi movement, but particularly in the 20th century, the escalation in the loss of memory in the, about the special status of Mecca it was is unprecedented in Islamic history. So if you even look at Mujallat al-Azhar or Mujallat um, like uh, Minbar al-Islam um, uh, or Mujallat al-Saqafa, which used to be published in, in Cairo in the um, uh, late 19th century, early 20th century, and you find the articles written about Mecca, you find that still these articles were keenly aware about the special status of of what sacredness meant in Mecca. By the time we get to the 50s and 60s, with the massive plans to expand the Haram al-Makki and to make it more commercially lucrative um, and the destruction of so many historical sites, what went along with this is the de-emphasis of the untouchability and immutability of Mecca as sacred space. Um, I mean, massive shifts, and it's still uh, scholarship of Muslims in the modern age about something so critical is deeply deficient and wanting. Okay. So, so then where we left off, is Ta'zim Hurimatillah and Ta'zim al-Shayt is not just being not just observing halal or haram, but ta'zim al-shay is a deep sense of reverence that one develops towards something. So 
When we get to verse 30, So, understanding that in this life journey, we human beings choose to develop a sense of reverence or lack of reverence towards all types of things. You know, we develop a sense of reverence certain towards certain institutions that we consider prestigious. We develop a sense of reverence towards maybe some labels that we consider, you know, a sign of power and uh, elite status. We develop a sense of reverence perhaps towards what nation we come from or what country we come from. That is an ongoing psychological process that we engage in all the time. And it is not happenstance or coincidence. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala comes and says, Understanding what are the horomet, what is what are the sacred boundaries boundaries of the divine, and developing that sense of reverence that deep sense of respect and sense of awe that you are not dealing with what you would have discretion over. But that is why in Islamic law, when we come to the issue of Hormat, we always say that a prime, the, 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 the sort of a legal presumption is wajib al the, the the obligation of precaution. The idea of the obligation of precaution, it, although you know, express it in law as a, as a procedural rule or as an interpretive rule, but it is meaningless if, if it doesn't reflect a sense of reverence. That you, in fact, are saying, you know, I must be introspective about what I am in awe of. And understanding the proper role of the divine and part of this is reverence towards the taking of life for the purpose of consumption. That the only reason you, in fact, can take life is because of the divine permission to do so. Absent that divine permission, you wouldn't have a right to slaughter a sheep or a cow or anything else. And then the closing in, in the thir uh, uh, number 30, the verse 30, the obligation of truthfulness and as i said in the last halaqa that we have 
numerous discourses that were generated particularly in the first century of Islam. This, these are discourses by companions or tabi'in, by successors, that emphasize false testimony in Mecca, if committed in Mecca, is equal to al-had, equal to disbelief. And lying in the sacred space of Mecca is a kabira min kabair that it is a major sin. While lying, you know, if you lie as you are selling and buying products, or you lie about uh, something else, you know, whether the lie depends, it could be a major lie, could be a small sin, could be a sahira min sahair, or a lemam, depending on the lie. Uh, but that emphasis, that you are, there are the the space reserved for the divine, ethical rules become especially pronounced. As we will see, it is a training. It is it is um, it is if as we will see that Allah subhanahu wa taala is as if telling you. This is the only way that the divine can in fact be your partner as you exist on this earth. When you learn to give that type of reverence to what Allah draws a boundary around and says, this is reserved as space for the divine. Okay. Now, notice this remarkable expression, this is 31 whereupon the birds carry him off or the wind blows him away into a far off place this is to be borne in mind and anyone who honors the symbols set by god shall know that verily these symbols derive their value from the god consciousness in the believers hearts this is again muhammad asad's translations so it is as if in this context saying truly dedicated to God, truly with, with your gaze fixed upon the divine, not distracted. Not distracted. 
the expression is all forms of associating partners with God. Now here, of course, is not just shirk, meaning worshiping idols, but when the when you ta'zim is shit, when you uh, revere something equal to the reverence that you owe to the divine or at the expense of the reverence you owe to the divine, that is a form of shirk. But that expression that Allah then tells you, understand that in this journey, in this arc of life, the cost of revering the wrong things, the cost of being confused about what is owed to God, that expression of as if you are you are literally abducted by a, by a flying thing or the wind blows you into a deep valley and an expression of utter loss it is as if god is saying get this right because otherwise you will be as if it you, you will fall through a bottomless hole your sense of purpose and compass your sense of being anchored in a truth will be utterly gone and then you are utterly morally and ethically and spiritually lost. And again, now, that the key here is that it's not just simple obedience because you could obey something without revering it. But, and you could in fact not obey something to the letter, but still revere it. But that sense of ta'zim lil-hurumat wa lil-sha'ir, that sense of understanding the proper moral status of what Allah demands of you, now, here particularly, first we get that you, you revere what the sacred space. Second, this is in 32, now, Sha'ira, is the expression Sha'ira itself comes from ultimately was derived from the word shi'ar. Shi'ar is the banner of a thing, is the sign of something, 
So, revering sha'irillah, it is not that you are, the, the word ritual doesn't cap, capture it, because ritual has the implication of something like a, a, a performative action that is done out of habit or but the reverence that you have for let's say ritual acts it is because they become as if signposts as if flagships for the philosophy of life for the way of life that Allah is demanding. So, and what is the ultimate sha'ira that we are revering here? It is the hajj itself. It is the visit to the Bayt al-Atiq. It is the visit to the primordial home, the divine home. So, The surah begins with taqwa, then circles back by 32 to tell us that revering the sha'ir, revering these, for lack of a better term, the, the ritual of hajj itself is anchored in the principle of taqwa. Min taqwa qulub. And 33 gets us to the understanding that the sha'ir that Allah is specifically referring to or more specifically, more particularly referring to here is the act of sacrifice itself that ultimately the act of sacrifice as we as again underscoring the idea that it is because of the journey of the, the sacrificial animals is ultimately to the primordial home, to the divine home. Now, these animals journey to the divine home, to the Bayt al-Atiq, to the primordial home, to be sacrificed for the sake of serving and elevating and sustaining human beings. And for the sake of removing inequities between human beings so that human beings that normally cannot eat meat in fact will be able to eat meat. And that in this space all the differences are removed. Ibn Arabi is the only one that I found that drew that same parallel who said 
the arc of the animal's life is ultimately to the primordial, to the Bayt al-Atiq, to the home of the divine. The question that confronts a human being, what is the arc of your life? These animals, and this is assuming that we, and I've talked about this last halakha, you know, assuming that in fact you will sacrifice an animal, but that these animals are sacrificed to serve a purpose. They by giving up the, the, the lives that God gave them, it is to uphold a sacred principle and a sacred space and a sacred mission. What purpose, what sacrifice have you have you offered and have you served okay then we get then we get this most remarkable which um, okay وَلِكُلِّ أُمَّةٍ جَعَلْنَا مَنْسَكًا لِيَذْكُرُوا إِسْمَ اللَّهِ عَلَى مَا رَزَقَهُمْ مِنْ بَهِيمَةِ الْأَنْعَامِ فَإِلَاهُكُمْ إِلَاهُ وَاحِدٌ فَلَهُ أَسْلِمُهُ وَبَشِّرُ الْمُخْبِتِينَ الَّذِينَ إِذَا ذُكِرَ اللَّهُ وَجِلَتْ قُلُوبُهُمْ وَالصَّابِرِينَ عَلَى مَا أَصَابَهُمْ وَالْمُقِيمِ الصَّلَاةِ وَمِمَّا رَزَقْنَاهُمْ يُنْفِقُونَ so with 34 and 35, these are you know, the types of ad that you can pause at and reflect for, for eternity. It's mind-boggling that some Muslim authorities, you know, refer to the ridiculous concept of abrogation and said, oh, you know, abrogated versus it's, it's nonsense. You know, I, I'm even... It's speculative, not based on anything other than lack of understanding. Look, to every ummah, to every group of people, ja'anna mansakan, we've created a mansak. What is a mansak? In linguistically, a mansak is al mawda al mu'atad fil khair aw shar. It is a the the a habitual path, a regularly followed path. So, for every nation, we've created. Allah inspired them. Created here means Allah inspired either through a messenger or through human inspiration. A path, a method. For indeed the remembrance of the divine. 
and explicitly for the remembrance of the divine so that the the um what is the word the book word the 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 the, the obscenity of sacrificing life, and here we're talking about animal life, for this, for because sacrificing life other than with the permission of the divine is an obscenity. So, and then Allah it, it comes and says, think about the critical issue that your God and the God of so many of these monastic is, is the same God. We're going to pause at the Mukhbitin for a second. Okay. Now, the reason that some scholars or you know said oh this was abrogated because they had an enormous problem with it allah seems to be saying that this is remember this was preceded with there are Zoroastrians, there are magians there are christians there are jews allah will resolve the differences That Allah is, as Allah does in, in, in not just in Surah Al-Hajj, but in, in many other places that we've talked about. That Allah is coming to say, understand that there are practices of honoring the divine. The issue is to actually understand whether these practices is ultimately worshipping the same God. And the critical issue is submission and ikhbat. And we'll talk about what ikhbat means. So a lot of theologians said, well, how could it be that any mensak, other than the mensak al-Islami, other than the Islamic rituals, could be valid. While a minority like Ibn Arabi, or most of the you know, most of them were Sufis, obviously, but anyway, who said there is no reason to resort to the concept of abrogation, because Allah is saying the issue it is not your business. The issue is to look at the moral quality of the act. And the moral quality is defined by real submission to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And ikhbat means, or al muqbitin, al ikhbat huwa tawadu' wal khushu'a, true humility. the heart of 
المخبت is is a is a person who is truly humbled. So is it is, is the, the what exists in their heart is a reverence to the divine because of their utter and authentic sense of humility. Now, of course, it is for historically for for any system of belief to come, especially in that age, the time that the Quran is revealed, and to even entertain the possibility that a prophet is coming and saying, well, you know, understand that it is not just simply about your team versus all other teams, but that it is the ethical quality of the system of belief, whether there is true submission and true humility before the divine, was clearly ahead of its time. And that's why some had to resort to the concept of abrogation to try to resolve this matter by saying, well, you know, these verses were no longer. But Okay. وَالْبُدْنَ جَعَنَّاهَ لَكُمْ مِنْ شَعَائِرِ اللَّهِ لَكُمْ فِيهَا خَيْرٍ فَاسْكُرُوا إِسْمَ اللَّهِ عَلَيْهَا صَوَافٍ فَإِذَا وَجَبَتْ جُنُوبُهَا فَكُلُوا مِنْهَا وَاطْعِمُوا الْقَانِعَ وَالْمُعْطَرِ كَذَلِكَ سَخَّرْنَاهَا لَكُمْ لَعَلَّكُمْ تَشْكُرُونَ لَنْ يَنَالَ اللَّهُ لُحُومُهَا وَلَا دِمَاؤُهَا وَلَكِنْ يَنَالُهُ التَّقْوَى مِنْكُمْ كذلك سخرها لكم لتكبروا الله على ما هداكم وبشر المحسنين. So let's take the translation of this these at first. Okay. So I'm going to read the entire passage from Muhammad's asset translation and then comment. And thus it is unto every community that has ever believed in us have we appointed sacrifice as an act of worship so that they might extol the name of God over whatever heads of camel God may have provided for them to this end. And always bear in mind, your God is the one and only God. Hence, surrender yourselves unto God. His translation is a little different from what my commentary. And give though the glad tiding of God's acceptance unto all who are humble, and all whose hearts tremble with awe whenever God is mentioned, and all who patiently bear whatever ill befalls them, and all who are constant in prayer and spend on others out of what we provide for them as sustenance. And as for the sacrifice of cattle, we have ordained it for you as one of the symbols set up by God in which there is much good for you. Hence extol the name of God over them when they are lined up for sacrifice and after they have fallen lifeless to the ground, eat of their flesh and feed the poor who is content with their lot and does not beg as well as those who is forced to beg. It is to this end that we have made them subservient to your needs so that you might have cause to be grateful. 
But bear in mind, never does their flesh reach God, and neither does their blood. It is only your God consciousness, the taqwa, that reaches God. It is to this end that we have made them subservient to your needs, so that you may glorify God for all guidance with which God has graced you. Um, and give though this glad tiding unto the doers of good, verily God will ward off all evil from those who attain to faith, and verily God does not love anyone who betrays God's who betrays his trust and is bereft of gratitude. Uh, okay, so let's with this translation of mine, let's go, go back. So, because I skipped verse 35. Okay, so, those who submit to God and Ul-Mukhbitin, as, as, I, as I said, who are humble and God-consciousness is deeply embedded out of a deep sense of humility in their heart. Whose hearts tremble in reverence at the remembrance of Allah. And who withstand hardship. In other words, those who are persevere and are patient when tested with hardship and difficulties and who establish prayer and and again the, the, this constant theme of spending from what God has given them they spend now the context of Surah Al-Hajj clearly indicates in my opinion Again, Allah explaining that act of sacrifice. Don't believe you are entitled to the sacrifice or that it is the natural thing to sacrifice. The sacrifice that you engage in is only justified because God gave permission for it. Otherwise, the consumption of a living thing would not be allowable. And for the distinct purpose of helping others. And what was this, this critical idea, Allah reminding us, this is the the actual slaughter of meat and consumption of meat this is for your own good the part of it that accrues to the divine is the taqwa again going back to the idea of the taqwa tasheer al the, the dedication of the Buddha to play that role, that sacrificial role, always remember this is about helping 
other human beings, human beings coming to the assistance of other human beings. The ethics is what concerns God. The reason I underscore this is because this is precisely why those who, pre who, who pretend that it has to be the sacrifice of an animal as the method of helping a fellow human being, I think they're missing the point. The very logic of Surah Al-Hajj, the very language of Surah Al-Hajj is Allah is saying, this is about helping one another. Now, if you can achieve taqwa by coming to the aid of one another in a way that upholds the same principles, it is not as the old systems, old religions, or old system of belief that it is, there is, a, there is a, 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 a value in the spilling of blood. This was very common among religions, even in, if you read the Old Testament, you, you'll find that, that reverence of the idea of the spilling of the blood of an animal as somehow something that purifies or wards off evil. The Quran completely rejects that. The spilling of the blood of an animal is of no concern to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now, of course, for the modern mind, we, we, we are oblivious to the importance of this idea. But historically, that was a very important concept, that it is not about the spilling of the blood of an animal. It is about who gets to consume the animal. Okay. Now, after this comes for the first time for the Muslim community the permission to fight. And the permission to fight is prefaced and conditioned. That they have suffered an injustice. And the, the injustice specifically, this is 39 and 40, is that they have been they have been pushed out of their homes, they have been ejected out of their homes, they've been displaced, in other words. And they are displaced because of their commitment to God and their reverence for God. It is critical that Allah at this point not just tells us that 
you've been given permission because you've suffered an injustice. And the injustice is because you've been expelled from your homes. And you've been expelled from your homes because you are exercising immoral right, an ethical right. You haven't been expelled from your homes because you're doing something uh, immoral. But that Allah comes and it justifies the logic for war. This, again, for historical, for religious texts placed in comparative perspective within their historical moment, blows your mind. That Allah comes at this point and it says, listen, Allah, if it hadn't been for the fact, let's see how Muhammad Asad translates it. Maybe it will help. Okay, 40, um, where is it? Uh, for God had, had not enabled people to defend themselves against one, for if God had not enabled people to defend themselves against one another, one another, all monasteries and churches and synagogues and mosques in all of which God's name is abundantly extolled would surely have been destroyed. Um, uh, slight difference. لَوْلَا دَفْعُ If it hadn't been for the fact that God uses human beings to balance or to repel one another. So it's as if God is saying war the reality is is that violence is used to for human beings to hold one another in check. Now, what is mind-blowing is that at this point, when Muslims are beginning their, 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 their state in Medina, is Allah says, if it hadn't been for the fact that God, there's a balance of power that goes on, the eradication it is not just that mosques would be eradicated, but it is temples and churches and mosques, all places of worship. And when you you pause and you think, well, wait, why would all places of worship be eradicated? Well, because whoever becomes a dominant system the, the dominant empire would wipe out all competing places of worship, which was the norm back then. And the only reason that Judaism survived or Christianity survived or Sabi'ah survived or the Hunafat survived is because human beings were prevented from the act of extermination, which is the natural historical inclination of human beings, 
of the systems of belief and their places of worship because of a balance of power that existed. So, when Allah is giving Muslims the permission to fight, Allah parallel with this permission. Allah is also restricting their ability to destroy places of worship that are not theirs. So it's, it, it again, you know, these things that tell you that it's this is this book cannot be by a human being that as i give you permission to fight it is not a morally acceptable solution for you to eradicate everything but mosques and in fact fighting is not a natural good it is a necessary evil. It is a necessary evil because this is, otherwise human beings would become intoxicated with power and would eradicate difference. Now, remember, this comes after Allah has told us that different nations have different ways, different paths, of honoring the divine. And so pause here and think for a second. Before this, Muslims were persecuted but were not allowed to fight. And then Allah comes and says, A, your differences, fighting is not about resolving your different convictions and different systems of belief. This is not what fighting is about. Because in fact, Allah will resolve your, your disagreements in the hereafter. Not, but on earth, that's not the purpose of war. Second, that different people have different manasik and different shair. And that ultimately, Allah looks to the moral quality of submission and humility before the divine. An ethical consciousness. And you've been given permission to fight because you were expelled from your homes, because you suffered an injustice. But your charge is not to destroy all other places of worship or all other methods of worship and only sustain yours. Now, But when Muslims started to fight, although they suffered an injustice and 
the dream of liberating the Kaaba was still quite far away. I mean, we don't we don't actually see people daring to say that we are fighting to 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 because ultimately this is what there are they in Surat Surat Hajj talks to them about Hajj as if as if they're able to do it, but at this point they're in fact unable to perform it. The, their ability to perform Hajj is more like a a a, 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 a wishful thinking. They've been expelled. They've been persecuted. But this is the point that Allah comes and educates Muslims as to why even animal life is sacrificed. Why they are given permission to defend themselves and take human life. And what are the limits uh, under which they will operate as they, you feel like it's a moral journey, not simply a permission to fight, but an entire moral transformation that Allah walks them through. To reach a point in your journey that you have permission to defend yourself, you must know what you are defending. And what you are defending must be morally worthy. Reflect upon Surah Al-Hajj, you'll see throughout, it's as if Allah is, from the very beginning, Allah is saying, it is not just about, you know, going to war. And it is not even about liberating the homes that you've been expelled from. This is about taqwa. This is about ta'zim sha'irillah. This is about ta'zim hurmatillah. This is about ikhbat. This is about Islam. Islam means in sense of submission. This is about all these things. This is about honoring the many different ways that Allah is revered and honored. In my opinion, the only reason they are given permission to fight is because with the Prophet in their midst, they are internalizing these ethical meanings. Often you find Muslims assuming that first they reach the the decision to fight and that it doesn't matter 
ultimately what they're fighting for. It's completely messed up. If you are fighting, but what you are fighting is not a just moral order, then you can't count on Allah's support. If you are fighting, but your ethics are not the ethics of taqwa and ikhbat, then you cannot count on Allah's support. Then you, the very act of fighting itself is more likely to result in far greater injustice than justice. The decision to resort to force is a very heavy moral consideration. It is to repel injustice while defending the ethical order that constitutes a just order. Now, this is precisely, then look at this. 41, it followed immediately, was 41. Now, Allah, here, Surah Hajj introduces a, a, a new concept. Tamkeen, at tamkeen fil ard. Alladheena in makkannahum. We've encountered actually the concept of tamkeen before, but in, in, in Surah Al Hajj it is revisited with new vigor. In makkannahum fil ard. Aqamu al salah, wa atu al zakah, wa amaru bil ma'roof, wa nahu an al munkar, wa lillahi aqibat al umur. So, the point tamkeen is let me see how Muhammad also translates it. Forty-one. He just translates it as uh, uh, we firmly establish them on earth. Those who are given the power to become dominant or autonomous on earth. It's like saying those given the power. You could be a mustadaf. A mustadaf is you're oppressed, you're powerless. And as a powerless person, you have an obligation to seek tamkeen, to seek to become empowered. But then Allah in Surah Al-Hajj tells you, those who, when we give them the gift of empowerment, what do they do with it? Aqamu salah they worship God. Wa'atu they dictate. They take care of the needy. And this critical function of bearing testimony. 
they, they, they create a normative order which seeks goodness and establishes, pursues goodness and resists what is not good. So Muslims are, this is early on in their journey, and before they really have any sense of tamkeen, and before even the Battle of Badr, and Allah comes and says, you can count on Allah's support, but Allah's support comes if Allah empowers you, Allah gives you any sense of empowerment on this earth, you achieve these specific moral objectives. That is why the genesis of the entire, when you read the Summa of Thomas Aquinas and his whole discourse on natural law, the, 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 it's all anchored in this in these simple words al amr bil ma'ruf al munkar seeking what is good and fighting what is not good every concept of morality you know and and a more you know kantian morality or aristotelian morality all starts from that premise the pursuit of what is good and resisting what is not good. So, and that is why Muslims, when 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 they in the you know in their period of translating Greek texts, Latin texts, and Greek texts, and so on, they they were so fascinated by the entire the whole discourses on the nature of morality and the nature of goodness and what is the, the nature of the bad and, and the hasan and the qabih and all of that, especially in the in the first couple of centuries of Islam. And, you know, the heyday of the, the Mu'tazila, the rationalists of Islam and, and, and so on and so forth. Because of the Quranic charge itself that if God empowers you, you have an affirmative obligation to pursue what is good and to resist what is not good. And God has already warned you that the nature of good could overlap between Muslims and non-Muslims. So that Muslims do not have an exclusive claim over what is good. And in fact, all like if you read the the Qadi Abdul Jabbar the Mughni, his whole the whole thrust of his discussion about his his whole journey to investigate morality is say the Quran itself leads us to the idea that there is a moral order that is objective and universal, primordial, if you will. It's like the, like al-bayt al-atiq itself, 
it is immorality. Actually, I forgot who uses this in might have been a kindi or that morality is like the primordial home for human beings. It is, he doesn't call it a bait al he calls it bait something else. That it is it, 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 the sort of the essential bait for, for humanity throughout the ages. And it, our charge is to investigate that primordial morality, that morality that that allows us to share concepts like submission to God, humility before God, the the nature of goodness itself, the nature of zulm or of, of injustice versus justice, and so on and so forth. Okay. Uh, there is a shift in gear and a new paragraph after this um, that's quite profound. So let's take a two-minute break before we enter the shifting gear and the new paragraph. Okay, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. I'm told we're okay now. Okay, so we now the uh, this is at forty-two. So there is a, we, after the concept of tamkin, empowerment, and. Allah conditioning, Allah's support when empowered to specific moral and ethical goals. Then Allah speaking to the Prophet reminding him that it is takzib, disbelief, or people opposing the and what is a righteous ethical message is part of Allah's constant and continuous sunnah on this earth. That they disbelieve you as they disbelieved previous prophets. Although this is said to the Prophet the fact that it is a more normative message for those who seek al-amr bil-ma'ruf al-munkar that expect to be opposed, expect to be disbelieved, that becomes clear in 45 that time and time again Allah allows 
societies that become marred in injustice to crumble for the injustice itself to eat away at the foundations of the society. There is a, a, a note in 45 that expression See, Muhammad Asad translates it. And how many a township have we destroyed because it has been immersed in evil doing? And now they all lie deserted with the roofs caved in. And how many a well lies abandoned? And how many a castle that once stood high? أهلكناها وهي ظالمة فهي خاوية على عروشها. So injustice leads to the crumbling of societies. But that image of بئر معطلة بئر معطلة is the, 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 the foundation or the source for life, water. It's uh, noteworthy that bir and the expression muattala, it's like it is not that the water disappears, but the the functionality of the of the well is what collapses. In other words, it is that. Human beings, because of their own social order, are unable to use or unable to get what used to allow them to preserve life working. It's like the, 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 the disintegration of, to you in our language, the disintegration of the administrative functions that would allow the water to sustain life, to be distributed, to uphold life, that ultimately then gives us the image of the abandoned castle. So it is the homes had become abandoned because their ab the ability of the society to, to make what needed to work or what used to work the ability to to continue functioning to support life because of injustice has disintegrated i mean a more stark warning about the effects of injustice in society and what it does now numerous in in islamic discourses you find and even in the tafsir literature itself, like if you read Tafsir Razi, for instance, and what, or Tafsir, tafsir Mutaridi, and what he says about the relationship between a society that is no longer capable of engaging in the function of an Amr bil Ma'roof and Nahi an al Munkar, and the, the, the relation of that to injustice, and how then injustice eats away at the ability of the society to even 
sustain the, the most basic mechanisms for the preservation of life. Um, I believe that this, this type of thought is what allowed the Islamic civilization to spring into existence. This you don't find in the Islamic tradition, unfortunately, as much, but reflect upon what is necessary for in any particular day and age for people to engage in the function of truly al-amrul ma'ruf wa nahyan al-munkar. Because as many scholars have in fact recognized, al-amrul ma'ruf wa nahyan al-munkar it is not a matter of just appointing the right judges or the right muhtasib. It is true that in the medieval imagination, there was a tendency to think that al-amr al-maruf al-munkar is, is in part appointing the right people, but mostly the existence or the sufficient number of pious individuals that uphold pious functions in society. That, that's a typical medieval way of, of thinking of social functions. It's, it's like people used to imagine that the way that you win wars is for there to be brave knights, you know, the, the, the knight figure who is willing to fight to the death and it is the, the, the individual heroic acts which ultimately allow for victory to come. This medieval way of thinking is grossly now dated because human beings have developed sufficiently to understand that it is not a matter of just heroic figures sustaining the functionality of Amr al-Maruf al-Nahar al-Munkar but that you have to create an order a system in which people are able to engage in the type of thought that recognizes what is ma'roof and what is munkar and to advocate for what is ma'roof and advocate against what is munkar. That fundamentally what you are talking about, you are talking about speech and that if people are not sufficiently educated, if people are not sufficiently motivated, if people exist under fear or under terror or are threatened, these functions become impossible. Okay, so that, that critical concept that Zulm leads to human beings creating unjust orders, orders that prevent human beings 
from engaging in the type of, types of functions that pr promote and protect and preserve life. Um, the other really important concept here وَإِنَّ يَوْمًا عِنْدَ رَبِّكَ كَأَلْفِ سَنَةٍ مِمَّا تَعُدُّونَ That Allah chooses this point to tell us that, to remind us that a day, that God's time is different than your time. And that what, it, what could constitute conceptually a day in God's time is a thousand years. Now, uh, th this is not, uh, this is something that a lot of commentators noticed. That when Allah chooses this to say, it's, 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 Allah is telling you that when you study the rise and fall of societies, the, the relevant time span is not, you know, a decade here or a decade there. That in the same way that the, 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 the difference between the time span between the Prophet Ibrahim السلام, and the Prophet Nuh السلام, and the Prophet Musa السلام, and the Prophet Isa السلام, you're talking about considerable amount of time that passes. And so when you think about learning ethical lessons from history, it is very dangerous to do what especially, what in fact now modern people do, and that is to look at a rather very limited expanse of time. You know, the fact that something has been going on for a couple centuries, you, you might end up you might end up with a very wrong ethical message if you consider two centuries or three centuries in human life as dispositive in terms of the, the moral lessons that Allah is talking about in Surah Al-Hajj. Okay. Now, The next major shift in Surah Al-Hajj, which could have arguably been um, um, could have been arguably been a minor point, had it not been for the way things developed in Islamic history is the ayat that had become known as alluding to the story of the Gharaniq or Qissat al-Gharaniq. وَمَا أَرْسَلْنَا مِنْ قَبْلِكَ This is um, 52. وَمَا أَرْسَلْنَا مِنْ قَبْلِكَ مِنْ رَسُولٍ وَلَا نَبِيٍ إِلَّا إِذَا تَمَنَّا أَلْقَى الشَّيْطَانُ فِي أُمْنِيَتِهِ فَيَنْسَخُ اللَّهُ مَا يُلْقِ الشَّيْطَانُ ثُمَّ يُحْكِمُ اللَّهُ آيَاتِهِ وَاللَّهُ عَلِيمٌ حَكِيمٌ لِيَجْعَلْ مَا يُلْقِ الشَّيْطَانُ فِتْنَةً لِلَّذِينَ فِي قُلُوبِهِمْ مَرَضٌ وَالْقَاسِيَةِ قُلُوبُهُمْ 
الظالمين لفي شقاق بعيد. So this is the 52 and 53, the so-called um, what became known in the modern age as the satanic verses of Ayat al-Shaytaniya. And there's there's a lot that one can can say about this, but okay. So first, what's what's the narrative about? The, the verses themselves. Let's see how how does it translate this? It's interesting. Okay. So this is Muhammad Asad's translation. And yet, whenever we send forth an apostle or prophet before thee. And he was hoping that his warning should be heeded. Satan would cast an aspersion in his innermost aims. But God re renders null and void whatever aspersions Satan may cast. And in God and God makes God's message clear in by and by themselves. For God is all knowing and wise. The the critical point here is this expression إِلَّا إِذَا تَمَنَّ أَلْقَ الشَّيْطَانُ فِي أُمْنِيَتِهِ The language of the Quranic text is that التمني is what the reason Muhammad Azad translates it as aspire from what he aspires for is that التمني is what you are hoping for what you are aspire for what you're attracted to and then the meaning becomes quite clear is that Allah is telling the Prophet many prophets before you were denied and the the truth of the matter is people deny the ethical past and they suffer the consequences of their denial. And that when you take, take the repeated lessons of history and humanity, is that the unethical past leads to destruction time and time again. But when it comes to the prophets, to the apostles, because of the amount of resistance that apostles confront, there is even a hadith, a riwayah that says that the opposition to the prophet was so hard that he would start fretting the revelation that he is going to receive that it would result in further escalation and exasperation of the clashes between him and Quraysh. That every time the Quran would come and talk about a condemnation of shirk and condemnation of kuf and a further uncompromising position, that the, the, this, this resulted in anxiety, because the prophet knew what would what's going to follow from that, and so then you take the the literal what the the literal language is saying is that 
prophets would would start entertaining thoughts or flirting with thoughts of something that would lead to less confrontational paths between them and their people. Like exactly that riwaya that the Prophet would start becoming anxious about. And that this sort of moments, if you will, of weakness, psychological weakness, would be from shaitan. And that Allah would strengthen Allah's apostles by aiding them and supporting them in these moments. That's what the language of umnia, a hope, an aspiration, a desire, not action, not words. But where did the problem come from? The problem came from a hadith that is known as Hadith al-Gharaniq. That according to these traditions, that the Prophet is in Mecca, and the Prophet is reciting the Quran, and that as he's reciting the Quran, shaitan comes and whispers what the prophet believes is a revelation where the prophet mentions the deities worshipped in Quraysh and calls them al-gharaniq al-ula and says that shafa'atuhum turtaja meaning that these are the lofty um, lofty beings whose intermission should properly be thought. So in other words, that these deities that Quraysh worshipped are their, their, their shafa, their intermission with God is something to be sought out. And thus according to the these uh, hadith is that upon hearing this that muslims then did sujood and with muslims quraysh who did not the, the unbelievers of quraysh joined muslims in sujood and then afterwards gibril comes to the prophet and said what did you recite? And the Prophet responds, I recited what was revealed to me. And Gabriel then tells him, no, the, the, this, this, what you recited about al-gharaniq al-ula and the shafa'atum turtaja is from the devil. It's from Satan. Now, of course, The, the narrative is extremely problematic because it would have us believe that the Prophet received a revelation from Shaitan and could not tell the difference between 
a revelation from Shaitan and a revelation from God until Gabriel came and corrected him. And that the Prophet, as he's reciting in prayer, that these deities are didn't realize that this effectively undermined the entire Islamic message. I mean, what is, or remember that by then we had the entire Mecca and Quran revealed, including, you know, simple verses, ayat like, So that the Prophet effectively recited in prayer and didn't realize what he recited in prayer until Gabriel came and corrected him. Now, in part, Muslim scholars throughout Islamic history rejected this rawaya for the rather very obvious reason that it contradicts it contradicts the Quran itself. So so hold on. Let's show you this. So for instance, by then we already have the Quran, the, we already have the Quranic revelation, for instance, وَلَوْ تَقَوَّلَ عَلَيْنَا بَعْضَ الْأَقَوِيلِ لَأَخَذْنَا مِنْهُ بِالْيَمِينَ ثُمَّ لَقَطَعْنَا مِنْهُ الْوَتِينَ Or, وَلَوْلَا أَنْ ثَبَّتْنَاكَ لَقَدْ So we have Quranic revelation in which Allah already affirms and says that it is impossible that the Prophet would that it is impossible for the for Allah to allow the Prophet to and in fact Allah tells the Prophet that if you would miss misrepresent any of the Quran, Allah would promptly spite, smite you, that Allah would promptly destroy you. So it contradicts cumulative Quranic ayat that in which Allah repeatedly says that the possibility that the, the of the of of Allah allowing the Prophet to corrupt the revelation or to present a corrupted revelation is not there. But now there's other things. With Hadith al-Gharaniq, we have um, the, the main birth of a hadith al-gharaniq 
it comes from okay just bear with me for a little bit there is a figure called Abdullah ibn Hantab Abdullah ibn Hantab it is reported that Ibn Sa'd heard this hadith from Abdullah ibn Hantab the other main path for Hadith al-Gharaniq is Muhammad bin Ka'b al-Qurazi. Now, when it comes to Abdullah ibn Hantab, ليس له صحبة. He, which we have Ibn Sa'd, or at least the report says, Ibn Sa'd heard it from Abdullah ibn Hantab, but Abdullah ibn Hantab, who claims to have heard it from the Prophet, was never a companion of the Prophet. So that's one. The second is from Muhammad bin Ka'b al-Qurazi. Muhammad bin Ka'b al-Qurazi was the son of a man known as Abu Ka'b, just okay, that's sufficient. Abu Ka'b. Abu Ka'b was from the tribe of Banu Quraiza, the Jewish tribe of Banu Quraiza. And remember, this is Banu Quraiza, the, the one that was the tribe that supposedly the Prophet executed all the men. But anyway, Abu Ka'b was from that tribe. And after Abu Banu Quraiza were expelled from Medina, Abu Kab converts to Islam. Well, it's actually disputed whether he ever converted, but anyway, at some point or another, he probably in late in his life he does convert, and he gives birth to someone called Muhammad. He names Muhammad. Muhammad bin Kab was born after the death of the Prophet. Muhammad bin Kab is the one, the, the main other figure that reports Hadith al-Gharaniq. But Muhammad bin Ka'b al-Qurazi, who is the son of a Jewish convert, and there are many reports that he actually raised his son as a Jew and called him Muhammad as a form of dissimulation. Anyway, that Muhammad bin Ka'b al-Qurazi himself was born after the death of the Prophet, so it's impossible that he had heard this hadith from the Prophet. Um, there are the only other path is Ibn Sa'ib Kalbi reports that he heard Hadith al-Gharaniq from Ibn Abbas but the problem is, is Ibn Sa'ib Kalbi was a known liar and a known fabricator of Hadith 
despite all the genesis of this riwayah, because I've spent a considerable amount of time going over not just the material, but even the material that Shahab Ahmad cites in his dissertation, because back then also we were very close friends and I used to read drafts of his dissertation and anyway, it's a long bygone life. Um, these are the only reports. So you have Abdullah ibn Hantab, who didn't have a suhbah, was not a companion of the Prophet. You have Muhammad bin Ka'b al-Qurazi, who very big questions about his motives in circulating this tradition. But anyway, who was born after the death of the Prophet and a well-known fabricator of hadith like Ibn Sa'ib al-Kalbi. From that genesis, although contrary to what Shihab Ahmad claims in his dissertation that early Muslim jurists accepted the authenticity of this report. The only Tabari re reported it, this riwayah from Muhammad bin Ka'b al-Qurazi, without authenticating it. And Tabari did not authenticate reports. So, and, that, and Tabari actually, uh, we don't, criticism of Hadith al-Gharaniq Hadith al-Gharaniq was rejected in the Shia tradition from the get-go, never accepted. In the Sunni tradition, you have some sources that either report it without commentary or report it and say that it is munqata, that it is it goes back to an authority, but the link to the Prophet is not is or you know Rufi Rasul that it it occurs initially as a tradition communicated without a, a a clear link to the prophet and then later on there is a claimed link to the prophet. Clearly, I mean, if you then review later authorities from you know the Baghawi or uh, Razi or all the in all the tafsir, there is a unanimous rejection of the authenticity of the satanic verses. Now, so that is why I say that historically, it would have the very expression ayat al-shaytaniyah is a, is a modern expression. It was known as hadith al-gharaniq, and you would read in source after source after source that hadith al-gharaniq is a fabrication and has no basis, and that it contradicts the express revelation of the Quran itself, plus, now there, there is um, even more problematic a hadith that claimed that the Prophet was bewitched under a hadith al-gharaniq, but, Again, 
all the traditions about the bewitching of the Prophet are anchored in Ruwah who were among the Nawasib. Without exception, that they were Ruwah that, and Hassan Farhat al-Maliki is absolutely right about this, Ruwah who although converted after the Fatah, their loyalty and fidelity to the Islamic belief, to the Islamic faith, is doubtful. And their, their desire to, the, 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 the role they played in circulating a hadith that are unbecoming, that are uh, degrading towards the Prophet is, you know, a very big topic and another open matter. Okay. So, I mean, because of this, unfortunately, we have to spend the time talking about the satanic verses and saying that it's not, you know, it's a fabrication and but in the context of Surah Al-Hajj itself, if you put aside Hadith Al-Gharaniq, the, the purpose of this ayat becomes quite clear if you put it in the context of Surah Al-Hajj. The Prophet is, is now about to embark on the entire mission in Medina. And there are going to be numerous challenges. Some of these challenges, which we've already encountered, what you do about the hypocrites, or what became known as the hypocrites, what you do with people that will betray you in the midst of battle, like withdrawing in right in the marsh in the Battle of Uhud, or like the challenges in the Battle of Khandaq that we've talked about. What you do with the increased pressure by the old elite in Medina to distance and to put at bay um, indigent migrants that are flooding Medina. And so, for instance, when they told the Prophet that, you know, we have a problem with the fact that uh, all the, the, the amount of time that you spend with the indigents of Medina, which we've talked about. So there, were, there will be numerous challenges in which you will, shaitan will attempt to influence you to entertain the unethical past. Like the lesson itself which we encountered in Abu Tawalla. And the warning here from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is that Allah, Allah is with you 
that Allah will in fact help you against shaitan. But the ideas, the aspirations, the sentiments that you will be able to overcome with Allah's aid are going to be a fitna for those whose faith is weak. This is what you get in 50, verse 53. That it's like telling the, the Prophet, even if you are safe, your ummah is not safe. Your people are not safe. These ideas that will challenge what you are charged with accomplishing in Medina. You will, as, and as we saw already in numerous examples, in fact, Muslims did struggle with. Now, C54. لِيَعْلَمَ الَّذِينَ أُوتُوا الْعِلْمَ أَنَّهُ الْحَقُّ مِنْ رَبِّكَ فَيُؤْمِنُوا بِهِ فَتُخْبِتَ لَهُ قُلُوبُهُمْ وَإِنَّ اللَّهَ لَهَادِ الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا إِلَى صِرَاطٍ مُسْتَقِيمٍ So, this is the second use of ikhbat, which we'll talk about in a second. So, and God renders Satan's aspirations null and void so that they who are endowed with innate knowledge might know that this divine writ is the truth from thy sustainer and that they might believe in it and their hearts might humbly submit unto God. For behold, God does guide unto a straight way those who have attained to faith. Okay, so let's go back again to, to 54. So, What I want to emphasize, pause at, is فَتُخْبِتَ لَهُ قُلُوبُهُمْ So, this, there are those that are going to be tested by the type of temptations that comes by satanic temptations, by deviant temptations by the temptations that normally corrupt power and corrupt justice and corrupt an ethical mission of al-amr bil-ma'ruf al-munkar but those who are capable of true humility before their Lord, again, that concept of ikhbat, they will be able to resist the aspirations of shaitan 
they will be able to go along with you in the pursuit of a Surat al-Mustaqim, of the straight path. What time is it? 9.15? Um, We are, um, we're going to have another shifting gears and Surah Al-Hajj is going to enter into a new paragraph, another movement in the symphony, but it is the final movement before we get which will carry us to the end of Surah Al-Hajj. So I'm reluctant to start it tonight because it's a Tuesday night and I don't want to go till 10 um, because it's a Tuesday night and some people have work. And um, So shall we stop it? Shall we stop for tonight? Okay, let's stop for tonight. Yeah, um, just bear with me because when you it's it when you get when we get to that final movement the message of Surah Al-Hajj is mind-boggling it, it if you truly internalize it you, you, you're never the same thank you Sheikh as if it hasn't already been incredibly mind-blowing up until this point it's so beautiful um, at so many levels and like we were talking at the break um, about how like this message just works so you know in tandem i think joe's point like even with like surah bakara and the whole message of there are no chosen people and this message really or this surah really hammers home the idea that it's about ethics and it's about justice and you know even in the the conversation that we had um with um you know my two convert friends the idea of the this primordial uh, connection to god which you know um i think even joe made the point that it's not really about convert versus heritage Muslim at, you know, at some point it becomes really about sort of like, you know, mulk malakut, um, you know, primordial versus social. I mean, it's, it's really about the ethics and the, um, commitment to justice and God's message. And it's just, it keeps like just building up and getting better and better and cannot wait for the last section of Surah Hajj. Um, it's been stunning the entire way. So um, thank you so much. Um, it's always sad to, to, to shorten it, but it's a Tuesday night and it's a necessary 
end. Um, I hope that um, everyone um, has a wonderful rest of the week. Look forward to seeing you on Saturday. Um, sadly, we'll have to go back to only once a week, but um, inshallah, you know, um, it'll be something to look forward to every weekend. So thank inshallah. you for being with us, and inshallah, we will see you very soon. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum, everyone. No, 55, 56 is a transition to just simply say um, that. You know, the, this struggle is going to, the struggle between good and bad and right, and it's going to continue forever. There's never going to be an end to it. And then, then it gets to the the, the main, like, shifting gear of, of talking about the Hijra. But, but it's it, it is like um, it is it is like saying you know you're in you're, that journey from your persecution to your permission to fight to your hijra to the, your, your entire journey is a like you are journeying to your primordial home it is there is the journey that we we all take to to hajj but that journey itself is a symbolic to a core journey that we are always engaged in we can either choose for our life to be a journey to for an, the, the ultimate abode, the abode of the divine. Or we can choose our life to be a journey to nothing. You know, you, you're, it's, it's, it's amazing like the, uh, that khutbah that I gave where I talked about consciousness, um, saying that, you know, you get the, the, the all of these, all of the, the khutab that have that, that tone are inspired by Surah Al-Hajj. Um, it's like, where are you going? And you decide, I mean, ultimately, either you acknowledge that you, you this, this journey has a destination or you like say you know I'm just journeying into oblivion, um, into a bottomless pit of nothingness, from darkness to darkness. So important, alhamdulillah, might include the little afterthoughts. And and the core and and the core, you, you know what is is. What then comes and crowns all of this, it's sort of hajj, is that this entire journey is anchored in jihad. That, okay, you recognize this is the purpose of your journey, is you're journeying to the primordial home, then 
that you commit yourself to jihad in Allah. <laughs> huh? What do you say? Spoiler alert. Oh yeah. That's that's the spoiler. That's the 